Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. And we are back to the single-payer series, and which we've talked about at a federal level. And today, we're going to take it down to a state level and focus on a state uh, which seemed to uh, move the single-payer system uh, further along than any other state, and that is Vermont. So, Chase, let's just start with um, why Vermont? Why do you think Vermont was able to move it further than any other state? Yeah, so Vermont is an interesting case. We always associate Vermont with single-payer now because we have Bernie Sanders, who is pushing, he's been pushing for a long time at a federal level. He was involved with the initial push here 10 years ago in Vermont. Uh, but just looking at Vermont generally, if any state offered fertile ground to create a single-payer system, Vermont seems ideal, right? It's some of the nation's healthiest residents. It has some of the nation's lowest rates of uninsured. It's small, it's homogenous, and it shares a border with Canada, has a single-payer system. So Vermonters would understand single-payer there perhaps better than other states. Right. It also only has a handful of private insurers, so it seems like it would be less disruptive than other states that maybe have more private insurance companies operating there. So so let's move to kind of the political background that was going on in that state at the, at the time. Give me some give me a view of that. Yeah, so we're back in 2010 now. Two things happened in 2010 that helped push through what was ultimately called Green Mountain Care in Vermont. Green Mountain Care is the actual single-payer legislation passed in 2011. But getting to 2010, first, the state's Republican governor, Jim Douglas, chose not to run again in the 2010 gubernatorial election. He was ultimately succeeded by Peter Shumlin. Shumlin is a Democrat who back then campaigned on a platform that included a single-payer system. So with Shumlin in the governor's office and the left-leaning Vermont legislature already there, you have single-payer advocates. They all finally had an ally in the governor's office. So you see the political stars align finally for Vermont. The second event in 2010 is that the ACA was enacted. While many in Vermont were supporters of the ACA, they also felt a little disappointed by the ACA uh, because of the accommodations it had in it for the private insurance system. Uh, those single-payer advocates felt the ACA was really a placeholder for a single-payer system, and that was sort of the end game for those advocates. They felt like this ACA was just a stepping stone, and they felt like at the state level they could go ahead and make that push now. Which is, you know, that, that truly did uh, happen at the federal level. There were certainly some discussions that that was the end game was single payer and that the ACA was just uh, 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 just going along that road. Right. So acting on this uh, wave of energy back in 2010, the Vermont legislature passed a law that was aimed at studying to see if single payer would be feasible in Vermont. So they set aside some money. It established um, the requirement for the government in Vermont to set up a team to study different designs relating to single-payer, and Vermont turned around and signed a team of three consultants to help develop their designs. These individuals are important to know as background. So the first was William Shaw. Uh, he is a Harvard uh, health economist and a consultant on a transition team back in 1995 for the country of Taiwan. Taiwan back then was switching to a single-payer system and he was heavily involved in that. The second individual is Jonathan Gruber. 
He is an MIT economist and is known for his work on Massachusetts's health care reform efforts, or Romney Care, and he was a principal architect of the ACA itself. The third individual is Stephen Kappel. He was, is an independent consultant from Vermont, so gives just kind of that local flavor to the team. Well, we certainly heard Gruber's name uh, during the ACA. Uh, so right now they're at the point where other states have been able to get to as they've been given a, a mandate to look into it. Let's study it. Let's see what we can if we can move forward. So what did this uh, team of consultants come up with? Right. So they took about a year, and, and in February 2011, this group of consultants unveiled a plan that would incrementally move the state to a public-private system. Um, it would be financed through a 14.2% payroll tax, employers paying the majority of that at 10.6%, and employees picking up the remaining 3.6%. Um, it would provide a benefit plan with an actuarial value of 87% for all Vermonters, to understand 87%, that means if I incur a medical claim of $100, the plan picks up $87. I only am responsible for 13. So that's a pretty rich plan compared to many of the plans on that we look at today on the ACA exchanges that are bronze or silver level. That's 60 to 70% AV as a reference point. So you mentioned public-private. Tell me what's private in this. And they actually called it a single pipe system. Um, where all payment and revenue sources would be streamlined, but it's functioning alongside the ACA. So there's still part of this that would be private. Specifically, um, they had to leave in place health insurance plans that were self-insured, that were go operating either within the state or were outside the state, but covering Vermont uh, residents. Um, so that's one big thing here is with Vermont, is it really struggled to be a true single-payer system there were outside forces still. You still have uh, Medicare, you still have Medicaid. Um, so those are some of the challenges. It would replace, though, the fully insured group health plan market in uh, Vermont. So there would be no private market in that way. Um, but one thing that the pro proposal from these consultants did claim was that Vermont would save $1.6 billion over 10 years uh, through consolidations, through efficiencies, and through cost controls. That was something that was uh, Shumlin really liked. So Shumlin's task then became, I've got to turn this proposal from my team of consultants into a proposed bill to present to the legislature. That's where it got its name, Green Mountain Care. That was the proposed bill. Shumlin liked most of the ideas from the consultant dream team. Um, it included this idea from the dream team called the Green Mountain Care Board. That was another part of this that was a little bit more uh, less government-run, but it was a five-person board to oversee the design of Green Mountain Care, and it became the board's function to address all major factors of the system. So they were in charge of developing and influencing the cost of health care, benefits, coverage, premiums. They had to, des to design all of that. Um, so it had some good framework in the original uh, bill that's proposed by Shumlin, but it was lacking one major thing, and that was that it contained no details on financing. So it didn't bring forth the financing that was proposed by the consultants. It just left it out. It, that, that seems like kind of a huge piece in right. any single-payer proposal. Um, so why would they? why do you think they left that out? Yeah, so basically, Shumlin and his team decided that including a financing plan in the initial bill 
would leave it open to attacks from opponents and therefore it would fatally wound the bill in the legislature. In other words, it would be dead upon arrival. Right. You wouldn't even be able to get it passed. Uh, so instead, they took this approach of delayed implementation. Uh, they thought that, hey, we can pass this now. We have a study that shows it's feasible at that level of taxes, um, but we're going to work out the details later. And um, with that, they were right in one way. They were able to pass the bill on May 26, 2011, so just a few months after their, uh, this Shumlin introduced the bill, it was passed. Which is something no other state has done. Right. So they're entering into new territory as far as single-payer systems in the U.S., um, and the bill gave Vermont several years to implement the proposal, with 2017 as the target date for full imp implementation. So you can see in their minds, they're thinking we've got um, f five or six years here that we can work out these details and we'll figure it out because we have proposals. We've seen studies that show it, it is feasible. We just don't want to get into the details now upon passage. Let's work it out. Okay, so, so let's dive into that financing a bit more. Obviously, they passed the bill now. Now they've got to move on to the real meat and uh, try to determine how do we make this thing actually work. So, so dive into the financing issue a bit more. So they figured they could get there eventually, but they kept punting on how they would get there. But to give you an idea on how on the punting part of this, the original bill gave the governor's board until January 2013, so about a year and a half to unveil its financing and funding plan. January 2013, by the way, was right after the 2012 gubernatorial elections. Vermont only has a two-year governor term, so that deadline itself was a little bit political. Um, but Jan even January 2013 came and went, and there was no report. In 2014, this report still hasn't come out. It becomes a big part of the 2014 elections, and so that report never actually made it out. Um, but ultimately, Shumlin's administration admitted that uh, Green Mountain Care would have been too costly uh, when they ultimately waived the white flag in 2014, it was revealed that there were big differences in tax revenue versus uh, tax uh, expenditures to run Green Mountain Care. One example um, study put it at in, in two, said that in 2017, Vermont expected to collect $1.7 billion in tax revenue. So this would be the first year that this Green Mountain Care would be in effect. Um, but that Green Mountain Care would have required an additional $2.6 billion in tax revenue. So that's an over 150% increase in state taxes. To pay for that, Shumlin's group had proposed an 11.5% payroll tax. Again, we mentioned a little bit over 14% for the original Shao Gruber consultant proposal. So the governor was backing down from the original proposal and mm -hmm. wanted actually to get even lower than that. They, wanted, they were shooting for under 10%. Um, they'd also promised a grace period to employers with fewer than 100 employees. And if you know Vermont, a vast majority of Vermont employers are small businesses. And so uh, that type of backtracking would have cut even further into revenue. And so that funding would have to be made up in taxes elsewhere. Yeah, I had heard that because uh, of the concern of how the payroll tax would impact those small businesses is what made them continue to back off and try to get under the double digits uh, for the payroll tax. And 
there was a lot of pressure for them to do so, and they just weren't able to get there. Right. So what other reasons um, can we look to in the Vermont system as to why it failed other than this obvious with the financing is kind of a big one, but what else is there? Yeah, and some of this gets back to the financing, but it also relates to uh, lobbying and just negotiations going on behind the scenes from business interests and from individuals. On the business interest lobbying, um, to avoid confusion for employers with out-of-state residents who worked in Vermont, the law was adjusted actually to allow non-residents working in Vermont to join Green Mountain Care. Mm. Um, so you can see you're now going to include additional individuals, yet you haven't accounted for what that, uh, where that additional revenue will come from to pay for that. They also eliminated the state's tax on medical providers. So again, more people to cover, fewer taxes to get there. So those minor adjustments impact financing, but are perhaps related to lobbying interests. On individual lobbying, the legislature raised the actual aerial value of coverage from 87%, which is what we talked about in the original proposal, to 94%. So really rich plan. Very rich. If we were uh, comparing this to what you can get on the ACA exchanges, that would be called a platinum plan. Again, I mentioned most plans on the exchanges are bronze or silver level. That's 60 to 70%. So you can see um, Vermont wanted to get somewhere where they could have a very rich plan, something better than perhaps what Vermonters were getting already. Um, but they also didn't account for the additional uh, cost to get there. So you can see this tension going on of trying to sell it to the public by uh, introducing a rich plan perhaps trying to reduce some of the employment taxes, the payroll taxes, to make it more palatable, and uh, yet trying to make the numbers work on the back end. Um, so when we look at single-payer systems, obviously the money that's coming in, the revenue has, that has to pay for it is one way that you have to look at the financing of it, but then you also look at what cost savings there could be. What did they find with um, cost savings, or was there any discussion around that in Vermont? Yes. So. Generally speaking, one way a single-payer system purports to save money is by controlling costs. That means, though, that doctors and hospitals will generally get paid less. Uh, in Vermont, specifically, the Green Mountain Care Plan sought to require hospitals and doctors to accept Medicare-like reimbursement rates for their privately insured populations, and that was to the tune of a 16% cut in payments. And that's uh, and, and right now that's really where the hospitals make up their uh, their shortage from Medicare payments because with Medicare payments they don't take in enough to cover the cost, right? And so they make it up through private pay. So now they're talking about cutting that as well. Yeah, and we've seen other studies at the federal level that say that cut to providers might be as high as forty percent. So sixteen percent, I think, was even a conservative um, estimate of what they were looking at. But that's a major deal, right? You have to convince the providers in your state, in Vermont, that that cut is going to work for them. They obviously are going to be lobbying against that. They want to be able to make money. And so the providers were pushing back. In addition, the health insurance companies were pushing back. I mentioned earlier this would eliminate the group market in, in Vermont, basically. So you have health insurance companies, even though there are fewer than in other states, you still have that interest. Uh, lobbying back against uh, this law. Um, so those things were unpopular um, with, within the healthcare industry itself. 
there were other so-called cost savings that weren't going to materialize quite as had been visioned up front. Um, Vermont's original assumptions were that the state would receive $267 million from the federal government in the form of an ACA waiver. That was later adjusted to only $106 million. So you see a big cut where they thought maybe money would be coming from. Uh, in the same vein, the original estimate of available budget from in-state Medicaid funding was $637 million. That number had to be reduced by $150 million due to budget constraints. So you add in an ongoing recession at that time, and that is also a factor that reduced Vermont's tax revenues. And so you can just see kind of a confluence of projections that didn't quite pan out how Vermont had anticipated, and that resulted in uh, not realizing the cost savings that they thought they were going to get up front. So aside from financing, so we've got, we've talked about revenue and the issues there. We've talked about the cost savings and the issues there. Aside from that, what other things can we take away and learn from Vermont? Yeah, so one big thing I wanted to talk about is this idea of educating the public. So Shumlin and his team had worked pretty hard to try and develop a viable program and make the numbers work, but it hadn't spent a lot of time educating the public about what the act did and how it would impact their, their lives. So you just think about understanding the system. What does this mean when I go to the doctor? What are my out-of-pocket cost, uh, out costs going to be? Helping Vermonters understand what they were getting, that was not something that they focused on. One survey conducted in 2014 is illustrative of this. It said that over 20% of the public were really unsure about how this single-payer system this, uh, would impact their lives. So you just think about that may not sound like a huge number, but if you're in that state, it's a small state, this is obviously the biggest legislative deal they've come across in a long time, changing the entire payment system of how you're going to access medical care in Vermont, um, and close to a quarter of the population really has no idea how it's impacting you. Um, so that's, that's a big part of it. Another part playing into this um, was mistrust of the Vermont government. If you remember, 2013 was when the state exchanges or marketplaces were going online. Vermont badly botched their launch. Their website was plagued with issues, and the Shumlin administration um, had very publicly tried and failed to fix that for almost a year before they finally just had to pull the plug on that. Um, so that was a big deal. Um, if the government couldn't even run a website. People were very curious how they were going to be able to establish an entire single-payer system. That was definitely a black eye right. um, on the ACA generally at the time and many states. Right. So you add in that with this failure to educate. People just didn't understand what they would be getting, where the taxes would increase, and where the purported savings would come from. You may be, you know, someone may have been able to show the public that their private payments and spending on health care would go down even though their tax dollars would go up. But you've really got to be able to map that out for people. Right. Yeah. And you're going to see that debate today. I think it's an important debate. People really don't understand the intricacies of the single payer system and how it will impact them. And each proposal is different. And so it's so important for the for the public to be educated on whether it will impact their, their taxes, whether it will impact their access to care whether it will, in fact, decrease some of their out-of-pocket costs. So um, it, it's important to see that it, that education component is uh, vital, even at the federal level. Um, so what other thoughts on Vermont's 
failed a single payer system can we take away? Yeah, so we hear more and more about states coming up with their own solutions. We've talked a little bit about other states that have at least introduced legislation to start studying this and getting serious. Maybe the political stars have aligned in certain states. New York, California, Colorado, Oregon, Hawaii, these are all states. There are others um, that are in the game. But I think the primary problem with state-based health reform, based on what we learned in Vermont here, aside from the funding, um, but it gets back to the funding, is that the federal government is still by far the biggest player and payer in the system. So the federal government subsidizes employer-sponsored health insurance coverage. We've talked about that in the past. It's the singus, uh, that's the biggest uh, expenditure in the tax code. And the government spends even more than that on Medicare for the elderly and also finances the majority of Medicaid for the poor. Um, so you just you still have that system going even at this if you have a single payer at the state level. Um, Vermont tried to replace employer-sponsored and individually purchased private insurance with their plan, but the state couldn't preempt Medicare. It couldn't preempt military health care uh, and large companies that directly pay for their workers' health care through self-insurance. So even getting back to this study, the Shao Gruber report, these consultants made it clear that for the Vermont plan to work, it would, ha it would have to gain waivers from Medicare, Medicaid, and even the ACA itself. Um, another problem is for, for state-based um, single-payer systems is that uh, for Vermont, they couldn't prevent people from getting private health insurance in neighboring states like New Hampshire, New York are right there and available. Um, so that makes it just all the more harder if you're trying to go to a single payer and you're surrounded by states that don't have single payer. You can easily see people uh, just getting out of the system and going over there. So what do you think that all of this means for single payer system in the U.S.? Yeah, it's hard to say, right? There are some things about this discussion that maybe translate well over to the uh, federal side, and there are some that don't. There are still huge hurdles for a national plan that we've talked about um, through Vermont's example. Um, those include funding, right? We keep getting back to that. The tax increases, there's still a lot of administrative complexity. We still have lobbying groups. We talked about that in, in Vermont. That gets even bigger on the national level. The health insurance industry, the providers, all the players in the healthcare delivery system now don't want that. You have to go up against that. And you have this idea of public education, which I think might be one of the biggest ones, especially as we get into the debates and the 2020 election cycle coming up very soon. We're going to see a lot of miseducation, misunderstanding about the proposals that have been put out there. And so being able to spell out some of these details um, at a federal level, the Democratic candidates, we talked about that on our last episode, are they going to be able to articulate what their plans are? Are they going to be able to include some of these details that Vermont left out of theirs so that they can sell it better to people in the U.S.? I think those challenges are still there. Right. And, and if you do have an interest in this at the federal level, I would recommend reading the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office's report that they came out with recently that truly was bipartisan and just looked at how to enact a single-payer system and the challenges at, uh, across the U.S., and it went through the various questions that any system would have to address. Uh, I thought it was very well a thoughtful piece, and I would recommend it to anyone wanting to read further about single payer in the U.S. Um, but Chase, thank you for taking us through Vermont and, and some of the lessons that we can learn from the failed single payer system in Vermont. 
And with that, uh, we will close this up as we like to do. That's, uh, that's a, wrap. a wrap. All right. Thank you for joining. Bye-bye.